your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And today we have an awesome show for you. We are going to be talking about AT&T's new NBIOT network. Madam A gets a hotel job. We've got some enterprise AI bot funding. We've got new smart home routers. HP Enterprise is going to invest $4 billion in the IoT Edge. And a bunch of other news. We're just not even going to cover it here. And... We have a message from our sponsor, Praetorian, plus our guest, Gabe Halimi, who is the CEO of Flow Technologies. He's going to be talking about insurance and smart home stuff. You're going to want to hear this if you have hopes of ever getting an IoT device covered by your insurer. And we have a brand new giveaway, plus we're going to announce the winners of our last giveaway. So all of this and more ahead. Stay tuned. Now... Let's take a message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is sponsored by Control4, a leading smart home provider, delivering support for nearly 12,000 connected devices professionally installed by a smart home expert. Lighting, security, thermostats, door locks, music, TV, cameras, and more work together to provide a smart home that's built for smart people. Your home and all the connected devices in it, controlled simply and easily. Now that's smart. Head to control4.com. That's control, the number four, dot com for more information. Okay, Kevin, let us get started. First up, AT&T has launched, or says it will launch, a NB-IoT network. For those of you guys who are like, what, 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 what? NB-IoT is a really low bandwidth, low data rate, relatively cheap, cellular-based, low-power wide area network. So it's like Sigfox's network, kind of like Ingenue. It's on par with LoRa. So very small, very bits of data. Little, yeah, very small bits of data and presumably very cheap. So MBIoT has what I call crazy low data rates. Like you can only send 250 kilobits per second compared to one megabit per second on an LTE Cat M network. And gosh, I don't even know what we're at on a normal LTE network. It's the dial-up modem for IoT. Yes, there you go. But it's supposed to be super cheap. The challenge with NB-IoT is you do have to buy modules. And right now, the industry is aiming for $5 for a module. And that's still super expensive when you compare like costs for Wi-Fi chips or Bluetooth chips, which are like in the dollar or 50 cent range. I mean, really cheap. And when you're thinking that there's going to be billions of these things connecting, that's a lot of money. So they're working on that. I don't know when we'll get there. So that's AT&T is doing this. This is worth noting because Verizon has said that they're going to do it. T-Mobile said that they were going to do it. But initially in the US, AT&T and Verizon were focused on doing LTE Cat M, which has the, like I said, higher data rate. So Europe and Asia had been like, yeah, NBIOT, let's make it so. But in the US, not so much. So now that these guys are actually piggybacking on T-Mobile's announcement and doing this. It's worth noting. The big questions I have are, again, about module costs. So you're going to need this for like high value devices that are moving all over the place. So think, you know, shipments of computing equipment or jewelry or medicine, you know, things that are going to travel possibly even around the globe, but definitely around the country in that it won't be cost prohibited to have like kind of a more expensive device and a more expensive data plan. That's the other element here is the data plan. So how is AT&T going to charge people for this when historically they want to do these like individual deals with companies and people? There are companies out there like Particle and I believe Twilio that can support NBIoT. But that's, again, a big question I have. Yeah. I mean, they can't use the traditional pricing that we use with consumers for phones and, you know, data rates for phones and such, because as a consumer, I mean, we have super fast wireless at this point and we're streaming big things like video. This is not that. So you're not going to get a one gigabit plan for your. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how they're going to do this. And it kind of 
burns my bottom that I have to pay like $10 a month for LTE service on my Apple Watch because they're kind of using that old pricing model, even though my Apple Watch only uses, and I've checked, about 100 megabytes per month, and yet I'm paying $10 for that. So on a per data basis, it's extremely expensive. They cannot do this. It's never going to succeed if they do that. Yes. So, oh, and AT&T says they're going to launch MBIOT in the US in 2019. And they're going to follow it in Mexico as well. And Verizon's plans here are similar, but they're doing their MBIOT network build out this year. And they've said that they're going to cover the whole country by the end of this year. So we'll see. And that is all the news we have on NBIOT and low power wide area networks so far. Let's go on to our next story, which is voice bots. Voice bots. This is voice a bots. So the big news this week was Madam A has a new role. She is going to be in Marriott Hotels. There are tons of Marriott brands that are going to have this, including ones that you might stay at. None that I'm going to stay at. Really? Well, because it's Marriott Hotels, Weston Hotels and Resorts, St. Regis Hotels, Aloft Hotels, and Autograph Collection Hotels. If a hotel has more than three names in it or three words in it, I can't afford it. So, yeah, no. Okay. Some of these are super trendy, I'll be honest. And Madame has been in high-end hotel rooms for a little while. There's been a couple that have deployed them. And I have been wanting this forever because every time I walk into a hotel room, I, you know, thus begins the search for the light switch, right? You're like, ah, where is it? Because we don't look for them at home anymore. That's why. So yes, yeah, so I've wanted this. There's a couple things, though, that are interesting about this. Marriott was actually the first company to hook up Netflix to your Netflix account in your hotel room. So Marriott's actually been doing a lot with connectivity over the last few years. This was back in 2015. And that was a big deal. And it took a lot of logistics to actually make sure that when you left, your account was deactivated. And that's actually going to happen in this case. So instead of attaching to your individual Amazon account, this is going to be a generic hotel account. And the recordings are going to be deleted every day. And the hotels aren't given access to the voice recording and your Madame A interactions. But they will actually get for the Madame A for hospitality, which sounds kind of like a whole little skill or action or app even. I'm they will. I'm it like a blueprint. You know, those mm-hmm. that, that's yeah. what it sounds like. Yep. The hotel will actually be able to measure engagement through analytics, or they can do some customization by choosing like default music stations and such, like Amazon's gave an example of Marriott offering TED Talks on Echo devices, for example. So that'll be pre-configured, which is nice. I mean, you don't want just access to nothing, right? But eventually, this kind of concerns me, eventually, they're going to let you temporarily link your Amazon account that are running these Madam A for Hospitality blueprints. And that's really nice because you get customization, but you've got to trust that when you check out, your account is automatically disconnected because that's what's going to happen. You're not going to disconnect it. It's going to happen. Or is it? One hopes that it will because Marriott has experience with doing this. And this, like I remember talking to Marriott and the Netflix guys, and they spent a long time making sure this worked properly and was safeguarding user information. So my hunch is that they have spent a similar amount of time. My worry is there's a couple. One Madam A, there's a lot of questions in the consumer's mind about privacy around this. So I think like there are plenty of people who will see this in their hotel room and will just unplug it. Like if I were walking into a hotel room with the explicit purpose of having an affair, I would probably look askance at the Echo. I'd be like, nope. And that's because there have been some weird glitches, like the Echo randomly recording people and thinking it hears things that it doesn't hear. And that's actually a little worrisome. And even actually, in one recent case, sending that conversation to a contact. Yeah, and I trust Amazon with my data, believe it or not, but I don't trust these sorts of weird errors, like glitches. The stakes in some of these glitches could be high, especially if you're in a hotel room. But maybe that's a good reason not to have your own account linked to it, because then the hotel just hears everything, except Amazon hears it. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't know that I would link my own account to it. I would just look at it as the TV that they put on there with the channels that they offer, right? I don't think I would log into my PlayStation View account, for example, and have access to my channels and my DVR stuff while on vacation. It would be nice, but I can do that on my my own device. Right. With Yeah, so no. And that's, we'll see how that works. But I think this is a really 
good use case for the Echo. I know Amazon has really ambitious plans. They've been talking to people across a wide variety of industries. And there are tons of industries every day that are like, Stacy, what do you think about getting the Echo in restaurants or in industrial factories? So voice is going to be a huge deal everywhere. And Amazon's really doing a good job trying to make it happen. It's funny you say that. Because that was a great segue right to an article that I wrote this week on basically the Madam A Everywhere strategy that I think is really helping Amazon keep its digital assistance leadership. And I'm amazed that they're doing it because unlike their competitors, such as Google, Apple, and even Microsoft, what do they have that Amazon doesn't have? They have desktop and mobile software platforms of their own. So how is Amazon doing this, right? How are they staying? Granted, they have first mover status, so that helps, but doesn't guarantee success, obviously. But it gets back to something you just said about the hotel bit. You trust Amazon with your data. And when you look at the companies I just mentioned, Apple is up there with trust. Microsoft, I would say, but Google, not many people or not as many people, I think, trust Google with their data as opposed to Amazon with their data. So I think that really, really helps. The other thing is Amazon's been very open and they have to be because the only way they're going to get this platform, and it is a platform, the only way they're going to get it everywhere is if they attract developers. They've got like 11 developer kits that you can buy, whereas the other folks don't. They have the most skills out there, depending on who you ask. They have about 30,000 Madam A skills. Google says there are 1,000, I'm sorry, 1 million, 1 million actions to try, but that's use cases. That's not actual developer actions. It, there are only around 2,000 actions. So, you know, again, Amazon is making a good play here to attract the developers here with building skills or routines or actions, whatever you want to call them. The other thing, and nobody's really been talking about this, so I'll just raise it, and I'm curious what you think. The biggest populated country on the planet is China. Who is persona non grata in China? Google. Google. Yep. Amazon. Now, granted, Amazon will be competing against some very aggressive and widely available retailers that are looking into their own AI bots and such. So it's not a cakewalk for them, but they have an opportunity where Google has no opportunity. So I think that's going to go a long way in the future towards keeping Madam A front and center for some time. So I agree. So that, yes. Okay. Well, there you go. I'm not going to argue with you on that. So... But now some people might, and I'd be curious to hear some comments on our voicemail if somebody disagrees. I mean, there's no right answer here, obviously. I would love to hear people properly push back, you know? Points. So we will look for those. Please yes. tell us or send us an email. We do read them. All yeah. right. Let's talk about, oh, enterprise AI voice bots. So oh, that's Madame right. A is looking at this space. There's definitely some actions that it's taken. Still kind of TBD on that. The, the Cortana example is one where I'm like, Hmm, that's both interesting and kind of ties into some of the things you mentioned, only it's like that frenemy kind of territory. But let's talk about Jane. Yes, I have not heard of Jane until I found her mention on voicebot.ai, which is like my new go-to site for voice stats, which is it's a really good site. You should check it out. Jane is a company started by David Carandish, who is the former CEO of Answers.com, which if you think about it, makes sense that somebody from Answers.com would be working with an AI bot these days. Jane is that AI bot. She is a AI-powered office assistant and launched about a week ago. The company raised $1.5 million in January 2017 to get started, but they just got another $8.3 million for an enterprise AI bot. And it's interesting because with Jane, she can tie into your enterprise system. So like you could just ask Jane, what's the status of the Purina lead that we've been working on? Jane will respond. Here's what I found in the CRM. The marketing department sent the proposal and we expect it to close on March 3rd. I mean, you could go into your CRM system and look all this up, but if you can have a voice assistant do it for you, it should theoretically save a lot of time. And again, it's a very enterprise AI focus. There's a lot happening in this space all of a sudden. Hey, voice is easy. It is not the sole thing. There will be others. So prepare for the multimodal future. But voice definitely has a lot of advantages. The invisible interface that everybody knows how to use. Exactly. You just yell at it and it happens. This doesn't even happen in my life. So... Keeping with the enterprise thrust of this week's episode, let's talk about HP Enterprise because they 
have announced that they plan to invest $4 billion in quote-unquote intelligent edge technologies and services over the next four years. I bring this up because I am super excited about edge computing. It's a big element for IoT. I know even if you're focused on smart home stuff and not thinking about enterprise type examples, not everything can go back to the cloud. We obviously talk about this a lot. So a lot of computing and processing from all of the sensor data is going to happen at what they call the edge. And this is a rich vein of opportunity for a lot of startups and big companies. So everyone from Intel and Cisco to HP and I don't know, just pick another big name IT company are all working on gear that is optimized to handle data processing really quickly. They don't have to be low power because everybody's definition of the edge is a little different. Some people are like, it's a sensor, but most of these guys are thinking about an aggregation point that sits on a factory floor or inside a server closet. And like a lot of this data shouldn't go up to the cloud because of security or trade secret kind of rules. Some of it's latency centric. So you can't have a factory that's like relying on data to dictate when something turns off. Any latency there could be quite honestly deadly. So these are why it's important. This is why HP is investing here. Now, the question is, what is it investing? Because everyone makes these announcements. Like hmm. three years ago, IBM was like, we're going to invest $5 billion in IoT. And actually, earlier this year, Microsoft was like, we're investing $5 billion in IoT. And so HP's $4 billion at the edge. What does that mean? It's going to invest in R&D. And it's going to focus on business models, which would be kind of cool. A lot of it's going to be security, AI, machine learning, and again, edge computing that we've talked about. So this isn't highly specific, but it is worth mentioning because for a while we were all cloud. Now we're like, oh, edge. And this $4 billion is going to be invested over the next four years, so roughly a billion a year. Right. So yay, more money for IoT at the edge. Yay. All right. Now. To the smart home. TP-Link, Kevin, you're going to love this because it's what you've said mm -hmm. should happen forever. TP-Link is adding Zigbee to its Deco mesh router systems. And along with Zigbee and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth that are already there, they're going to be able to have your routers communicate with Madam A and Ift. So, Kevin... I love it because all these extra hubs, boxes, gateways, etc. that we're plugging into the router just never made sense to me. Just put the darn radio chips for smart homes in the router to begin with. And that's what they're doing. They had a, this is, their, I think, their second mesh router. They had the Deco M5, which was a dual band router, no other radios other than Wi-Fi, maybe that Bluetooth. But now they've got Zigbee and the Deco M9 Plus mesh router. It's tri-band instead of dual band. Yes, more of this, please. Yay, they are pricier, just so you know. All right, let's talk about smart fridges and DRM specifically and smart fridges. This is a Twitter thread that I somehow got roped into and I'm really excited about. But this fellow was complaining about an RFID reader on GE appliances. So this RFID reader basically measures if you have a branded GE water filter in your fridge, and if you don't, the water dispenser won't dispense. Really? Yes. So No, no, no. This, That's not good. This was a lovely thread because it encompasses everything that you would expect from this kind of thread. People saying, oh, here's how you hack that system. And this guy being like, eh, that doesn't work. So I mean, we, we might hack it, but most mainstream consumers know. Yes, but it also includes GE Appliance weighing in to say, he's like, hey, what is this and why are you doing this? And GE Appliances says, well, this refrigerator requires this particular technology to work correctly. Please see the following link for details. And then GE is like, the guy's like, this is unacceptable. I don't like that. And then this guy, GE Appliances says, well, we recommend only using GE Appliances RFID filters as they are designed for your refrigerator specifically. And they give you the usual, a non-genuine filter cannot be guaranteed to work properly and may damage the area where the filter is screwed in. So this is not unusual. Any company that sells branded toner, filters, whatever else that comes with this stuff, they're always going to say, hey, use our branded stuff. But if we think back to Keurig and their K-Cups and their DRM associated with K-Cups, it becomes harder when you connect a device to the internet to do this. And that's... Yeah, I mean, I have, uh, I guess it's a Samsung fridge and 
usually I buy the Samsung water filters, but every once in a while, either they're not available or whatever, and I'll get a much cheaper third-party filter. I know it will work with my fridge. It will not work with this guy's fridge. He does not have that option, and it's not disclosed when you buy the fridge that it will only work that basically there's DRM on the filters, essentially. Yes. And this is actually a really prevalent idea in the appliance industry because they're looking for ways to, you know, create new services revenue, right? So reminding you that your filters do and then being able to let you order one automatically is really handy. But for the people who are like, yeah, I'd rather save this guy saying it's a $50 filter, which does feel very expensive. <laughs> mm, mine are usually 40 ish. So yeah. Yeah. So whereas a third party one might cost you the 15 bucks or less. Yeah. And in my case, I actually have a water filtration system on my whole house. So I don't actually use the filter in my fridge anymore. But in that case, GE does offer a bypass. So it just will give you, if you put the bypass in, it just gives you water. So your options here in this case are return the fridge, buy the GE part, or buy a whole house water filtration system and use the bypass, I guess, or just use the bypass and have unfiltered water. It looks like he is going to return it from the thread. Yes. This guy is like, I am returning this fridge. Yeah. And the interesting bit is talking about disclosure. The filters typically last at least three to six months, which when you figure this out, when you run into this problem, it'd be well past your return period. Yes. So we're going to say if you are making a smart appliance and you're going to stick some sort of DRM associated with your product in this, you've got to disclose it up front. I feel like the FTC and other organizations would be like, wait a second, that's not cool. So I agree. Revolution. Revolution. We've got so many other things we should be revolting. I agree. I so, agree. DRM and smart fridges, it's bad, but maybe not. All right, let's talk about other fixes, things that have gone wrong. Google is going to fix their location data leak in Google Home and Chromecast devices. This is a bit scary to me that this has just been found, but Krebs on security reported about it. Basically, you can inject some JavaScript in a website if you're an evil person, I guess. And that script can run and find out if you have a Google Home or a Chromecast on your Wi-Fi network. And if you give it about a minute to run, the script that is, it can get super precise location data, like down to within 10 meters, I believe. That's really bad. So Google is aware of it now, and they are going to fix it. I haven't seen when it's getting fixed, but really, really bad. Really, really bad. So, yay. I just, I'm surprised. I mean, that home product is not brand new. I mean, you expect these kind of... They've had a lot of issues with this product, though. Remember the incredible data consumption? They've had some Wi-Fi issues with it. They've had a lot of challenges. Yeah, that's fair to say. I, I don't know if you watched it, but there's about a minute and a half video of somebody actually doing this and running a script that they made to actually exploit it. And it like opens up the location in Google Maps to like, pretty darn close where you are. Right there. Yeah. It does take a minute. Like I'm staring at the screen, like watching paint dry, but you know, that's not the point of this. It just, it figured it out. Yeah. Ugh. Bad. Hey, okay. other news, perhaps less scary, perhaps more scary, depending. A company called BSH has partnered with Techstars to develop an accelerator program for the connected kitchen. And if you are like me, this is super exciting. BSH is a Bosch company, so one of the German IoT companies that we talk about a lot. They basically are going to create this accelerator with Techstars. The focus is going to be on digital business models and technologies for the connected home, so something that we are super interested in and super excited about. This will start in Munich in 2019, and it'll be a three-month accelerator program. They've committed to funding it and making it happen through 2021, and they're looking for 10 companies. So if you are excited about this, keep an eye on Techstars' website, and I am sure you're going to see something about their partnership with BSH. Maybe I'll get my refrigerated connected crock pot. This could be me, Munich, next year. Go for it. I was like, where's your enthusiasm, Kevin? Come on. (laughs) They're only picking 10. I mean, that's... A refrigerated crockpot is a brilliant idea. Yes, it is. You're going to be one of the 10. Thank you, Kevin. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) Little tiny other things to mention. One, Google now has a podcast app. And I know a lot of our audience listens to things on the web or through a variety of podcasting apps. 
less than half of you actually listen on iTunes. So if you're one of those people who are listening on an Android phone or the Google Home, now you have a podcast app you can use. You do. And even cooler, I think, is that when you listen to a podcast on your Google Home, you can pause it. And in the podcast app on your phone, you can say, resume playing whatever the podcast is, and it picks up where your phone left off. Ooh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. I was hoping you would say when someone listens to it on the Google Home that the podcast creator gets a million dollars, but you know, no, I will no, accept no. that. Ease of use is no. also important. Okay, and we have a clarification from last week. All right, buckle up, you guys. Wait, hold on. <laughs> if you thought it was confusing last week, prepare to be blown away. In last week's episode, we talked about Thread and we got something wrong. When talking about the Nest Connect device, and this is a device that acts as a bridge from your Wi-Fi network to the other Thread and Bluetooth networks in the house, we said that it was Thread ready and that it would run open Thread. It is running open Thread, but it is also Thread ready. Those are two separate things. We also said Google Nest's Thread ready software was called Open Thread. OpenThread is actually an open source thread group certified reference stack that you use to build actual thread compatible devices as opposed to the thread ready devices. So the Nest Connect runs OpenThread, but it is actually still a thread ready device. Oh my gosh. Was that? (laughs) Yes. That's all I can say. Yes. So hopefully that helps. I think part of the confusion, and I don't know if we said this last week or not, is that some of these hardware products came out while the thread spec was kind of in flight. And it looks like there's transition in the works to following the true full spec, if that makes sense. Yes, but it's not guaranteed. So, hey, and I just got an email from the Wise folks, since a lot of you guys love your Wise cameras. They have completed the development work on getting their Amazon skill ready. So they're working on final certification now, and they're going to let us know when it's done. So and now it's time for our IOT listener hotline. So we have a winner from our prior hotline contest. So Ken, you are going to get my old Ecobee SI thermostat. That's my new exciting noise. It sounds like a ghost. And this week, we are going to introduce a new giveaway. So the IoT Podcast Hotline is brought to you by Schlage, and now you're going to have the chance to win a Schlage Sense Smart Deadbolt and Wi-Fi Adapter. So you enter to win by leaving us a voicemail at 512-623-7424. And at the end of the month, we will pick a winner. So for this one, you have until midnight Eastern time on June 30th to win. So leave us a voicemail. And remember, smarter homes start with Schlage. All right. And Ken, you are not only our lucky winner this week, you are actually the person whose question we're going to answer. So let's hear from Ken. Hi, this is Ken. Stacy and Kevin, I've got a question for you regarding smart homes. Have you guys tried using your Alexa devices, such as your Fire tablet or your Echo Spot or your Amazon Fire TV? Have you tried things... Madam A, show me the front door. Have you been successful in connecting to the Ring video doorbell or to Arlo Pro camera? And if yes, how is the speed versus just using the smartphone app or the app on the tablet? Just wanted to get your experience on that. Is the experience seamless and fast compared to using Alexa and then looking at what's at the front door or asking Siri on your phone? Oh, Ken, this is, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I have done some of these things, but not all of these things. I have used my Amazon Echo Show to see what is happening from my Arlo cameras and to see what's happened on my video doorbell, which is by August, not by Ring. So I can tell you that there is latency. In my experience so far, it is not faster than going into the app. And it's kind of a bummer, but... It makes sense, though. It does. There's a technical reason why opening the app on your phone is going to be quicker. And that's because it's a lot quicker to just tap an app and have it open immediately, as opposed to speaking to a voice assistant where that recording has to go to the cloud, has to come back, 
And then the voice assistant hardware has to make the thing happen. So there's going to be at least, I'm going to say, one to three seconds minimum so of a difference. early days, when I first tried it out, the August was like roughly seven seconds, which was insane. It felt like dead air. I'm not even going to put that much dead air in the podcast because you'd all be like, oh, it's over. <laughs> but it did get a little better, but it, it never got like to the same level as the app. That being said, sometimes it's nice and convenient. That's not going to catch the UPS man, right? I used my Arlo on the, I actually put an Arlo camera on our roof deck and I would use it to check in on the kids when they were playing on the roof deck. So I would just down in the kitchen, I'd be like, oh, show me the roof and poof, I could see what was happening. So in that case, it didn't matter, but it would be terrible in a security setting. So I'm glad Ken asked this, though, because I actually forgot that Madam A is built into my Fire 10 HD tablet, and I have actually turned her off on that because I'm almost always around a Madam A device. But the advantage of the tablet is it has a screen, and I never thought to try and really use it in that way, kind of like a show or a spot. So thank you for that, Ken. I will probably turn her back on and do some testing now as a result of this. Yes, because Kevin actually has a ring. Correct. So, and I don't have Siri on anything that's connected to anything that Siri can control. So I don't know. And for what it's worth, I do have Google Assistant built into my TV set top box in my office, which is connected to a big 4K TV. And I do use that to say, hey, G, show me the front window where I have a Nest camera. It does work. But again, you've got that latency built in. My point is, this is not unique to Amazon. This is the way this is all architected for all of them. Yes. Okay. Remember, if you would like to be entered to win a Schlage Sense Smart Deadbolt, which I have tried and is really good, plus a Wi-Fi adapter, call us before midnight on June 30th at 512-623-7424. Can I enter? I want one. Um, Kevin, I am so sorry. You cannot enter. <laughs> Family members of the show host cannot win. Hate the fine print. Arr, fine print. All right. That is it for the news segment of this week's show. Stay tuned for our guest, Gabe Halimi, who is the CEO of Flow Technologies. It's a water leak detection company. And we're spending a lot of time talking about insurance and how to get them to pay for your connected home devices. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Praetorian. Praetorian provides end-to-end IoT security testing that helps organizations balance risk with time-to-market pressures. Praetorian engineers help you strengthen the security of your IoT products from chip to cloud. Turn security into your competitive advantage by earning a third-party certification from Praetorian, the leaders in IoT security. Microsoft recognized Praetorian as best-in-class. So when you think Praetorian, think IoT security experts. Check out the case study online to see how Praetorian helps Samsung strengthen the security of its IoT platform by visiting stacyoniot.com slash security. That's stacyoniot.com slash security. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Gabe Halimi, who is the co-founder and CEO of Flow Technologies. Hi, Gabe. Thanks for coming. Hey, Stacey. Thanks for having me. All right. So several months ago, you guys, I wrote about a bunch of startups that are disrupting the leak detection space. And Flow is one of those startups. So Gabe, really fast, tell us what Flow does. Yeah, Flow is a water monitoring and shutoff technology for the home. One device installs on the main water supply line and proactively monitors the integrity of the whole plumbing system to prevent catastrophic water damage from happening at all. We learn the habits of the home and we detect things that lead to leaks like high pressure, thermal expansion, freezing pipes. And by monitoring for those things, we can alert the homeowner. And if something catastrophic happens, we can automatically shut off the water, thereby preventing claims. So you do catastrophic like, oh, my gosh, my pipe has burst. It's crazy. Do you also do things like slow leaks? Absolutely. So our technology can detect something as small as a drop of water a minute. I would say most leak detection falls into a couple of different categories. You either have technologies that do not install on the main water supply line or ones that do. So like you just covered 
my friends at Roost and Notion, I would put those in the category of like the point sensor category. They're not on the main line. And then you have other technologies that install on the main line. Those generally can catch leaks, you know, anywhere in the home, like ours can. I think our technology is very unique in that we also have pressure sensing capability, which is allows us to catch things like micro leaks. So by doing pressure tests, we can identify leaks that are tiny behind the wall underneath the slab of the home that generally cannot be found by just monitoring the flow. And then I would toss in another category here, which is those that turn the water off and those that send you a notice. And you guys actually will turn the water off. Absolutely. You're right. Those are the two different ways that we kind of break up the competitive landscape. Now there's, you know, a lot of questions around price and installation. Our technology does require the professional installation where a lot of other technologies do not. But I think what you get for that in the end of the day is a technology that can really help prevent water damage from happening in the first place, which I think is really unique. Okay. And I'll just toss out some of those competitors so you don't have to say their names. So there's companies like Finn out there. They're a spin out of Belkin. There are companies like Bowie and Flume and some others. So lots of options out there in leak detection. It's a super hot place to be right now. Why is that? First of all, when you look at homeowners insurance claims that happen every year, water damage as a result of plumbing failures is the leading preventable cause of homeowners insurance claims every year. It's more than five times likely that you'll have a water damage claim versus theft or fire. And that's usually where people's minds go when they think of homeowners insurance and what they're trying to protect against. It's about $9 billion every year worth of losses for the insurance industry. And it's five times more likely that you'll have water damage in your home than a fire claim or a theft claim. So by frequency, it is the leading cause of claims. It's about 25% of all homeowners insurance claims. And so even though people's minds, homeowners' minds frequently go to, you know, fire or theft because there's really a lot of human peril involved there, the insurance industry is definitely has a focus on the water damage claims for that reason. And it is preventable. I mean, you can't really prevent a hurricane coming through a, a neighborhood, but things like fire, things like theft, Things like plumbing failures, these are things that can be prevented with the right technologies. We've been working on this for about 10 years. My father is my co-founder and inventor, and he has been a mechanical engineer for years for the plumbing industry. He was a manufacturer, but really notable here was that he was actually an expert witness for the plumbing industry, but defending subrogation claims from insurance. So when a plumbing failure would happen in a home, maybe a water connector pops off of the main water supply line, an insurance company would maybe pay out that claim and then turn around and file a subrogation claim against the plumbing manufacturer who they think may be responsible, maybe alleging product liability or negligence. And my father had defended over a thousand of those claims. He was seeing these astronomical claims happening. And here he is the forefront of uh, plumbing innovation. He's had previous inventions that have sold over 18 million units. And he's seeing these crazy claims happening as a result of plumbing failures. And he decided that there needed to be a better way. So this gets us into one of my favorite topics, which is insurance. Because, gosh, it feels like these guys should have a vested interest in putting this kind of product in the market and getting it into consumers' hands. What are you actually finding with them? Well, one, it's really slow. I think that although most insurance companies we talk to, I mean, every insurance company we talk to understands the value proposition. They understand what it is we're doing they're very intrigued. We are also similar to our friends at you know Roost and Notion. We're working with a number of different insurance companies on pilots. But because the technology is expensive and because it needs to be you know professionally installed, though we believe the you know ROI is there and it'll pay for itself, they're slow to adopt. And we found ourselves in what seemed like an endless cycle of the pilot testing. And so what we decided was we were going to collect our own data and we were going to get ourselves comfortable with our ability to actually help prevent claims and drive down the frequency and severity and come out with our own guarantee to homeowners that if they adopt our technology and if they act reasonably by you know, taking care of their alerts when they happen and maintaining their home with the tips we give them, that we will guarantee that they will not have catastrophic water damage in their homes. And so we just took 
an approach that we're kind of insurance company agnostic, if you will, until the insurance company comes around and does catch up. And I believe that they will eventually. But in the meantime, our value proposition kind of stands for itself. Got it. And I believe that Ring, the doorbell company, the now owned by Amazon, offered a deductible reimbursement process for their stuff too. They did. And Jamie Simonoff from Ring was actually one of my first investors in my company. And he was one of my early advisors. So that was definitely a play out of their playbook. I saw Jamie doing that a long time ago and kind of scratched my head. And I was like, that's something that we may be able to do once we collect more data and feel really comfortable. Now, Jamie did that with an insurance partner. He did that with American Family Insurance, I believe. That's right. Yes. And so we got so confident and, you know, we were kind of working with different partners and we just decided, hey, this is something that we can potentially do ourselves. Looked at the data that we had been collecting from the many homes that we've installed our technology in and just made the decision internally that this was something that we were just going to go about doing ourselves. So from an actuarial basis, because insurers love that, you have to have a certain number of like, it's like man years, but they're just years, years of data on leak prevention, for example. How do you guys create models What are your confidence intervals? What does this look like when you're like setting aside money in escrow to pay this out? Well, I mean, truthfully, with the homes that we've been installed with so far, we haven't seen any catastrophic water damage. Anyone that follows our technology the way that it should, we kind of did the math to see how many homes we would have had to pay out claims for so far if every single person had signed up for our Home Protect program. And we just, we didn't have any claims. So to some extent as a startup, you know, you can just look at the data you have. I wouldn't say that any of the data that we've collected would get any of the big insurance companies comfortable. We've been operating as a company for, you know, three years and had a I've had a product on the market for less than one. So I don't think there's any way that we would get an insurance company comfortable. But that's kind of the way that we went about it. That's why we went about it the way that we did. Excellent. Well, let's talk about this from an actuarial perspective, only because they care so much about longevity. And this is the sort of product where I plan to install this. How often should I replace this or think about how often should I have to think about this? The part of our technology that can really suffer from wear and tear is the mechanical ball valve. Our technology does turn on and turn off the water every single day. That's how we test every day whether or not there's a leak in the home. We know definitively whether or not there are leaks every single day. So by turning on and turning off the water and actuating that ball valve, that mechanical part could wear and tear. So we've tested that for well over five years. We've actually tested it over eight. So we believe that once you install this, you really don't need to think about it for at least five years. That's what we think the useful life is, but it could be much longer than that. But like any device, I mean, Nest has introduced a number of different, you know, thermostats, Ring has introduced new doorbells, the technology just gets better and better with time. So I don't believe that this is the kind of product that you're just going to want to, you know, set it and forget it for the next 50 years. I believe that at some point people will probably want to upgrade anyways. Okay. So for a while, Nest on the thermostat front was doing upgrades like every 12 to 18 months, which felt like super fast. Granted, it was a brand new product, so I get it. But what do you think the logical product update cycle is for something that is in a smart home? It's closer to about like 24 to 36 months. I just believe, I think that in our space specifically, this is so new and there's so much that we can do around water that, I mean, I can tell you, you're going to see different versions of our product released within the next 24 to 36 months for sure. And I think that, you know, we're all kind of waiting, as you've touched on in your previous articles, for some great connected home platform to kind of bring all these products together. I think with all the data that we're collecting, we're only going to make the home smarter. From our standpoint specifically, I can tell you, like we're collecting data every second of the day from a water flow standpoint, pressure standpoint, temperature. I mean, this is all new data that no one is really, you know, using yet to make the home more thoughtful. And so as different protocols may come to the forefront and whatnot, I think for a number of reasons, maybe 24 to 36 months. Okay. And let's go back to insurance because I didn't dig quite as much as I wanted to there. But let's talk briefly. So you guys have started this. I agree that the insurance market is waiting on data that they, I don't know if they'll ever get, but what do you think they're going to do in the smart home? Because there's this idea that they're going to like remake the way they offer policies and premiums. But then there's also a much more kind of mundane idea that they'll just do it as a competitive differentiator, like in marketing their insurance products, which is maybe less exciting. 
Yeah, and I think the latter is what they've been doing to date. All the big partnerships that we've seen between IoT products and insurance companies have really been about marketing. It's really been about differentiating their product. At the InsureTech conference in October of last year, I had the opportunity to you know share some thoughts on stage. And one of the things I said to insurance companies is, I want to partner with insurance companies that actually want to drive down claim frequency and severity. That's what we're doing. I'm, if people want to introduce Flow as a marketing product, they can do that. But really, we really want to make an impact on insurance. We really want to make an impact on how often homeowners are being inconvenienced by water damage. So far, there's a lot of talk. And I think that you are seeing some startup insurance companies that are seeing the opportunity and are moving you know, very quickly to adopt IoT and really bake that into you know, the way that they are offering insurance and the way that they're protecting homes. So if they don't to get it together, that's where I think the disruption is really going to happen. I will say, Stacey, there was one guy, I can't name his name because we were under NDA and I can't even name the insurance company, but there was one executive from one of the top five insurance companies that said to me, you know, at some point, the insurance industry just needs to look at each other and say, hey, this is a great thing. You know, we can test this. In, I mean, because our product has probably been tested by most insurance companies and their employee homes. And I know that they're just, they're all their eyes light up when they can see, you know, in real time, they can see what's happening with their home's water. It'll shut off the water for them automatically. So at some point, the executives, you know, on the business side need to go back to the actuaries and just say, hey, we don't need 50,000 years worth of data. Like this is just a great thing. And it's logical that this is going to help drive down claims. And we have to do something and so what he believes was going to happen is that at some point, you're just going to get a bunch of people together in a company that just say, this is too good to pass up. We need to do something aggressive here. And I kind of share that thought with him. I don't know if that actuarial, you know, 50,000 years of data is going to happen before you just get a few people that are thinking logically that are just willing to put their neck on the line and say, this is something we have to adopt. I think that's more likely to happen first. And if they don't, it feels like they risk being cut out. Now, there's a lot of opportunities, according to McKinsey and Bain and all these consulting studies that I get on the insurance firms, that a company like Google or Amazon could come in and create an insurance product that incorporates connected devices that would be just a much better deal for consumers because they would have, again, products like yours as part of that portfolio and claims kind of process and policy pricing process. Do you think that's feasible? Absolutely. I think that not only are we going to see those kind of companies adopt the right technologies in a more aggressive way, they're going to know what to do with all the data. I think right now, even, you know, I have a Nest in my house, I have a Ring doorbell, I have my Flow device, and none of them are really talking to each other, at least in a very smart way that's helping to protect my home and giving me multiples on that investment. With my device, with the Flow device installed in a home, like I said before, we're collecting data every second of the day. And so we know when people are home and not home just based on their water usage. So at some point, you're going to see when the Flow device shows that there's been no water usage or no flushes of a toilet, for example, for 24 hours, but the alarm hasn't been set. You should get a ping that, hey, you should probably set your alarm. It doesn't look like your home because you haven't had any water running here. Once you are able to connect all of these different devices, you're going to get a home that's much more resilient, much smarter. And I think that the way that it's looking, it's much more likely that an Amazon or a Google is going to come in and do that rather than an insurance company. Do you think customers and consumers are going to be excited about sharing all that data with some of those providers? I think it's all about what the quid pro quo is. I think that data can be used as a currency. So today, we don't volunteer homeowners data to share with an insurance company. However, if a homeowner would like to get some kind of an incentive from their carrier, and their carrier will offer that incentive in exchange for some sharing of data, then that's a decision that the homeowner should be able to make on their own. If they don't want to share the data, then you know, they don't have to accept whatever the insurance company is offering. So I think that it's a decision that homeowners have to make. I think it's an option for them. Ultimately, I do think they will share their data. 
as long as it's used in a responsible way, it will make their premiums lower, not just because of the incentive that they're getting from the insurance carrier for the adoption, but ultimately when you bring all of these different data points together, it's just going to make the home smarter and better able to protect you, which will ultimately mean lower premiums. So I really do believe that it's in everybody's best interest. You mentioned earlier some of the cool things that we can do with water information. So I'm curious, what the heck is ahead of us if we start looking at this type of data? So one, you can just learn a lot about homeowners. You can learn a lot about how they interact with their home. One of the things that I've been discussing with insurance carriers and the light bulb goes off, they get it, is when you receive an alert from Flow that, for example, you have high water pressure in your home. High water pressure essentially is like high blood pressure in your body. If you have high blood pressure for long periods of time, that's putting undue strain on your veins, your arteries, eventually organs, God forbid, can fail on you. When you have high water pressure in your pipes, that means that you're putting undue strain on your pipes, your fixtures, your appliances, and eventually something will burst. This is part of the preventative side of our technology. So when you have this data and you have these alerts from flow that are telling you hey, you got high water pressure. This is a maintenance opportunity. You got to do something about it. And now let's say that the homeowner ignores those alerts. They throw caution to the wind and you know they don't do anything about it. Well, now I think that says something about potentially that homeowner. Is that the same kind of homeowner that leaves their doors unlocked or doesn't set their alarm or smells gas and doesn't do anything about it? I think there's a lot that insurance companies can learn about customer behavior. And I don't mean to suggest that, you know, homeowners should be scared of data. I think what this is doing is it's offering more opportunities for homeowners to see what's happening behind the black box that is their plumbing behind all these different systems in the home. I think the key to a smart home is having a home that's more thoughtful, that suggests to you when there are different problems lurking, when you need to act, and not just you know being able to open and close your door by pushing a button. I think it's really about having a home that's smarter, that better protects you. So that's one of the things that I'm suggesting about water data. I think it's a great indicator of not only occupancy, but it's a great lens into all of the different activities in the home and being able to better protect you from a number of different dimensions. Awesome. It kind of sounds scary because sometimes I am that bad homeowner who walks out and forgets to lock their door. So I'm curious to see this brave new world ahead of us. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week, Gabe. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.